We ended up using technology to reach out to people directly. And actually that stemmed from this question that we asked. We said, what would this look like if it were extremely easy? If real estate was extremely easy, we would be walking around Reno and every single person would have the price that they would want to sell their property stamped on their forehead. And we decided, what would it take to make that a reality? What would it take to make everyone walk around with a t-shirt that said, I'm willing to sell this property for this much? And we realized, well, we have to contact at volume. Like We have to contact people and ask them for their price. And we have to do it at volume. For us, we don't care if you want to sell for a price that we don't want to pay because we'll just go somewhere else. You know, <laughs> We'll find someone else who wants to sell for some, something that we can make work. That was our approach to the game. And so we answered that question and said, scale is the answer. This is a, you know, a funnel, like a lot of other things out there. And we need to put more things into the top of that funnel so that what comes out at the bottom is really, really a good deal for us. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing into commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome. I'm Jake Harris, the host. I'm excited for this episode. Ryan Stenberg dropped some true, true knowledge bombs, things that I'm actually going to take away. I've been investing in commercial real estate for 20 years. This kid, I say kid, he's 25 years old. He was working at Google. He quit his job a year ago and then proceeded to jump into the space and buy $30 million in under a year, living on in a one-bedroom apartment with his buddies sleeping on air mattresses. The skills that he puts together utilizing technology to move at scale is, is unbelievable. And so many key knowledges adding value in every single category that he puts together. The psychology, the mindset, the action items. One of the other things that, again, that I'm going to share, look in and find out about the de-risking of acquisition of commercial property, being in that escrow time period, how it accelerates your action items. And it is unbelievable. I'm so excited for you guys to hear Ryan's story from being a four-year-old saying, I'm going to be an engineer when I grow up to buying $30 million worth of real estate in under a year. Unbelievable. So excited. Now into the episode. Hey, Ryan, it's awesome to talk to you. 
This is actually recording early 2022. I was actually, I was just thinking about this. It feels like a blink of an eye and it was just 2020. You know, it was just the pandemic was kind of happening. And then, you know, fast forward, we blink and now it's 2022. And what's super exciting is in that same time period, for the people, they don't know, uh, but you bought like something like $25 million worth of real estate in the last couple of years. We'll get into that, but I'd like to start is a little bit of your origin, your Genesis story. How did a kid, you know, start out in commercial real estate and, you know, what led to that, that process of discovery? Yeah, Jake, when you say it, um, when you say it like that, uh, it does make me realize how fast <laughs> how fast it's been. Kind of feels like both a lifetime and a blink of an eye since we started. And you know, I came from the the tech world. I was working out of college, working at Google as software engineer and then a program manager. And eventually, uh, you know, kind of kind of got a little bit tired of the routineness of the the nine to five job and whatnot. And so, real estate started to creep its way into creep its way into like at least my eyesight for a, a few years prior for a while it was like really it was really slow so i was um purchasing real estate out of you know, out of state small triplexes and quadplexes and stuff like that and it just wasn't moving the needle on what i was looking for towards you know going towards like financial independence and things like that and maybe one day you know leaving the w2 world or the 9 to 5 job and so it wasn't really moving that needle i was really fortunate with the timing i think of um uh, the whole work from home kind of movement and and whatnot, and for me, what it was is I, I realized uh, I really wanted this financial independence or to move towards financial independence, but given kind of the the whirlwind of daily life, I was working nine to five, commuting two hours. I was commuting two hours from San Francisco to the South Bay area um, every day, and then two hours back. There just wasn't time in the day to put in to kind of chase this thing down. And so when everything went remote, there was a, um, a group of, I guess, friends of mine from high school and I, um, who were all in that same, same boat. And so we kind of all jumped on this together um, at the beginning, you know, we call this March to May of 2020, all the way into real estate. Before we get into let's actually start with, you, you were working at Google, you know, you software, like a lot of people that's mating it, you know, making it like you made it, you got hired by Google. Like, so how, how did you start with Google? How did you get into that place? Like you're, you're a tech worker. And I know that we're, we're glossing over and we'll get to the, the, the commercial real estate, but I feel like there's skills and things that you've done to position yourself to even get to some of those call them early wins from the traditional W2 perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I grew up in the Bay Area, in the South Bay Area. My dad is from Sunnyvale, and I grew up always knowing I was going to be an engineer. I have a I have this arts and crafts project from kindergarten that I um, still have at my house, where it says, "When I grow up, I want to be an engineer." And you know what? Like four year old kid knows they want to be an engineer. Like they don't even know. No one knows what an engineer is when they're four years old, right? But you can tell like these things get ingrained very early on. And so I always grew up knowing I was going to be an engineer. My dad was a software engineer, so I went in to study that. I remember going into high school or college asking my parents, which engineer should I be? And then they said electrical engineer. And so I picked that. And so I think a lot of, to be honest, everything up until college and then maybe early in, in life, it's kind of paved out a little bit more for me. Um, there was less choice involved and a lot more of following the kind of the, the route that was 
prescribed. And I think getting into Google is, is not like, a, you know, it's definitely not an easy feat. So there's, there's hard work that goes into, you know, making sure, I guess, following that dream, whether it's a dream you chose or someone else's. Um, but I eventually landed, uh, landed at Google, I would say, largely attributed kind of going into the startup world um, in college. And so I went into, uh, started a company back in college, took it through the UCLA Accelerator, which is where I studied. And um, I remember the year prior to that, you know, very few job offers, internships and things like that. And coming out of that accelerator program, getting, I think, an offer at every company I applied to. Um, there was a week where I was interviewing at Apple, Amazon, Microsoft and Google within five days and flying between these different cities. And it just the world kind of opened up when that uh, after going through that experience. And so, to be honest, I loved I mean, that was both, a, you know, for these companies, maybe a blessing and a curse, because on the one hand, it gave me the skill set that I really needed to take things from nothing, from kind of chaos and ambiguity into organization, um, which was what Google was really valuing when I interviewed there. But also, it got me really hooked on the entrepreneurial life cycle and, and start and mentality and things like that, which I think is why when I eventually landed at Google, you know, fairly quickly, I found it a little bit dissatisfying the, the work that I was doing. And so um, that yeah, getting kind of hooked on that in college uh, led me eventually to probably to probably take an exit. So you mentioned that, and I'd like to dive into startup where, you know, there's not a whole lot of people, I'm assuming, at your company, and you got to kind of do a little bit of everything to going through the accelerator program to, oh my gosh, you now have the blessings, all the the you know, powers that be, Apple, Google, the, the sorts are giving you offers. You land at Google and massive thing. What was that dissatisfaction that you experienced working there? Uh, and has it been, was it a transition from the startup mentality to corporate Google, you know, uh, process or was it something else? What, and then what was it in your head that you caused that? So the uh, working at Google, there's a lot of awesome things. The, the work there is amazing. The the opportunity of what you get to, you know, the creative problems you get to solve, the scope of the work, how big it is, how large the scale of everything is. The people there are the most intelligent group of people I've ever worked with. Everyone there is wicked smart. So those things are fantastic. And the culture there is is amazing for for a company that large has retained a lot of its like entrepreneurial spirit. So I think a lot of you know there there are a lot of amazing things there. For me, the biggest problem was that the incentive structure is not the same as an entrepreneurial an entrepreneur's incentive structure. Everything is not interchangeable, all types of value. So the more hours you put in, what I always like to, you know, the way I like to look at it is when you put in more hours at a lot of nine to five jobs or a lot of the, the W-2 world, what you get rewarded with is a slight increase in pay, like a linear bump in pay and an often exponential increase in responsibilities. And I say exponential not because... Generally, I remember there's a point when I was working at Google where I was working 40 hours a week and I was presenting to present to an executive. They liked the, the data that I was presenting and the, the formats and what I was, you know, what I, the story I was telling. So they said, OK, next week, can you add this on? So then it went up and you know, it was like 45 hours a week. And then they said, oh, this is really good data. Also, can you do this as well? And then it became 50 hours a week. And then it became 60 hours a week. And it became 70. Eventually, it was, it was 90 hours a week. And what I realized is, Every next step up, every five, 10 hours more that you give up, you give up an increasingly high percentage of the, the remaining free time that you have in your life. 
And so you might be getting an incremental pay. Actually, I wasn't getting any incremental pay off that. <laughs> so the, the, the better you do, the more your, your incentive structure is, you're rewarded with more responsibility, more work. And so I just found that it, it wasn't a place that I could really um, go and do my best and be happy about what I get on the other end of that. And for that particular time at Google, like that, that was actually the first role that I had there. And eventually I hit a breaking point because yeah, the better you do, the more responsibility you get. And eventually that just bogged me down so much that I could not, I couldn't do it anymore. And I started to break down. And so I had to switch roles and, um, and uh, I realized, but that was kind of the first step in at Google where I realized maybe there's, you know, this is not the lifestyle for me because I am someone who wants to always strive to do whatever, whatever I'm doing, the best that it can possibly be done, but I'm not really getting rewarded appropriately. <laughs> so what was, you know, you, making decent money as far as it, it, it Google or kind of globally macro speaking, you know, the, at least from what I know about Google is that they are not the lowest paying employer out there. And especially considering the averages of, of most of the people in the country. So you said you bought some small deals. Like what was the first real estate deal you bought? Yeah, the first couple of deals. So the first one that I bought was pretty cheap. It was 95,000 out in Cincinnati, Ohio, a triplex. And I bought it maybe six months into working at Google. And I was, you know, felt, felt really good about it. Uh, I was, you know, six months out of college and had bought some real estate and there's not a ton of people on that boat. It wasn't anything huge and there was a loan on it, but, um, uh, it was a big first step. So then I think six months later, or so I bought the second one, um, after I'd saved up another down payment, but there was no way to kind of turn through these. And so what I was realizing is, oh, this is going to be, I plotted it out and I realized this is going to be five to 10 years of you know, buy and then save and sit there and you know, six months, save, 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 save. Okay. Now I can buy another one and buy another one and then save, 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 and buy another one. And I realized five to six, five to 10 years, is that really the, the, the speed that I want to go after this? And really it depends on the cost of the job, right? Like depends on how badly you want to leave or stay at that job. And um, eventually I just realized it wasn't the speed I was looking to go at. So I think that's uh, what an amazing curse and blessing that is to have that engineer mindset, you know, exactly as you said, plotting out your progress and be like, ah, five years, that's just way too slow for what I want to do. So tell me how you transitioned from that as far as buying a $100,000 triplex, $30,000 units to a multiple of them, then what was the next evolution for you? Yeah. So I actually only ended up buying two in that manner. And then I said, this will never work. It needs to go big. We need to go bigger. So we started looking for something bigger. And then we hit a huge lull because we were trying to step, you know, and I say we, because at the time I was buying with one of my friends. Uh, so it was me and him going in 50, 50 on all of these. So we were, um, we bought the first two, it was 95,000, it was 160,000. Um, and then we said for the next one, you know, let's get closer to Let's go for like a million dollars or something closer to that. And we were looking for a lot bigger stuff. And what we realized is, to be honest, we were unprepared. And it was the big the step up was quite large. And at least emotionally, it was too big of a jump for us to act on extremely quickly with confidence. So the next year and a half or so, we bought nothing. And that's when I started to realize, you know, which of the, you know, I started to think about which of these constraints are real and which of them are in my head. Because yeah, maybe um. You know, I would like it to go faster than five years, 
but do I have, you know, do I have the confidence to go faster than that? And I really had to like deal with that, that question for a long time. And especially because I was trying to do it, as I said, with the minimal free time that I had left on the side of Google, that four hour commute and a lot of you know time spent in the office, as I said, that was kind of scaling up. So I had to figure out how do I transition? So it took us about a year and a half before we bought something bigger. And then um, that kind of started the next phase of our journey, which I'm happy to get into. Yeah, no, I'd love to hear that as far as, you know, obviously you, you said a lot in there um, that I think that many people don't spend the introspective time of understanding and that exactly even that question you asked, which one of these limitations is a, a belief and, and which one, and, and the reality is all limitations are your self limitations and it's just a mindset thing. And so I tell people this story of, of a young kid that came to the country. So I, I went to grad school in, uh, at FIU down in Miami and there was a kid that came over from, I don't know, you know, to be honest, I, I you know, probably should know this in the story, but like Venezuela, Cuba, you know, Colombia, something like that with no money no experience, no credit, you know, nothing just came, you know, to the country with, you know, 10 bucks in his pocket. And he, the first project he ever did was like a 35 story high rise condo project. That was a hundred million dollar thing. And I was like incremental thinking about like, all right, I do this. Then once I can do this million, then the 10 million, then a hundred million, and then I can do this. And I have the skill set. then I can do this project. And it was like the, literally the first one he ever did with no money, no credit, no anything, because he just did it. And so it was like this whole action <laughs> limit. Now just like it's to me, it, it was like both enlightening and disheartening at the same time where I was just like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, this guy just did what I'm dreaming of doing bucket list things. And he just went and did it. But also how disheartening I'm holding myself back from he just figured out how to do it. So I think a lot of people, would, you know, I've heard the, the quote like, uh, you know, genius is a young man's game. And a lot of people attribute that to the fact that people, when they're young, they haven't, you know, they haven't been hardened by the realities um, or what they believe to be real constraints in the world, but may in fact just be constraints in their mind. Um, and so they haven't gotten that feedback loop yet of, can I do this or can I not do this? And so they just aim for the moon because why not? <laughs> you know, like, well, what, they don't have that constraint in their mind yet. And so I, yeah, I, I've seen that a lot of the time, especially in younger people, they just will aim way higher than from the outside. It seems they have the ability to do. <laughs> so what was it during that year and a half Talk me through some of those things. And then what was that first deal that you did on that next side? And how did that progress from doing, you know, a million dollar deal to doing $25 million worth of deals and, you know, whatever it was a year, or 18 months or something. Yeah. So we, um, we got, as I said earlier, like the, um, the whole work from home situation was a huge accelerator for us. And so what ended up happening was we wanted this to move this needle faster and faster and faster because we cared more about it as more time passed. And we kind of cut into that five year, you know, time span. We realized we got to do something to accelerate this. It's too painful to go every day through our jobs, realizing that we are not moving the needle uh, in any significant way. And so when the um, pandemic started back in early 2020, 
there was an email that went out that said, um, you know, you, uh, nobody can come into the office anymore. So everyone's going to have to work from or work from wherever it is. I, at the time, lived in a 13-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, and it was not somewhere I was interested to going <laughs> going back to to work in this uh, quarantine situation. And so what ended up happening is um, we actually had a, uh, I had with these same friends that I was buying real estate with uh, a mastermind retreat planned for that weekend. And so we pivoted that retreat. We ended up in Hawaii with, uh, for a week to a- answer one question. And the question was, how are we going to accelerate uh, the pace of this uh, pursuit of financial independence. And so we went there for a week where we would work our nine to five. We'd wake up early. It was because Hawaii time has shifted a little earlier. So it would be 5 a.m. their time and start meetings. By 2 p.m. we were done and we would just go to go to a beach, go to a hike and just talk about this question. How do I, how do we accelerate it? And eventually we like, you know, we came to this conclusion that like, really we have a lot more time this year than we've had in the past. We don't have to do that four hour commute. You know, we can just wake up and start working. We don't have to you know, get ready, go, you know, all of these little things will just save up all this time. And, you know, there's not a lot of social interaction that's going to be happening this year anyway. So there's going to be a lot less distractions. So what if we just basically, let's say, buckle down and work really hard towards this goal for the next year or so? And this is where I would say um, you bring a little bit of that element of genius as a young man's game and that, that naivety into it. Because to be honest, I thought it was doable in six months. I thought it was doable to hit financial independence in six months and get out. And I actually believe now that it it is. <laughs> um, it wasn't the path that I ended up. It wasn't. It didn't end up going that fast for me. But I think it is possible. Um, but the naivety of believing it could be six months was what got me just moving and acting very quickly. And so when we got back from Hawaii, there was a little bit. You know, there's a little bit of uh, getting our kind of ducks in a row and whatnot. But we eventually landed in in Reno, Nevada based on where we were hearing a lot of other investors with a lot more capital than we had saying they were extremely interested in purchasing property. So we said, look, we don't have money. So if other people who do have capital um, you know, are all claiming Reno, Nevada, Reno, Nevada, then let's go be the boots on the ground. Let's go be the people sourcing, sourcing deals, the op- which is the opportunity that they don't have or the, um, kind of the resource that they don't have. Let's go source that and we'll connect it, you know, connect them with it. And so we moved to Reno, Nevada to try and get into the center of this um, kind of a real estate world so we can move this as fast as possible. And um, we moved out there with the intent of uh, wholesaling property. Wholesaling is basically uh, putting a property into contract and then selling the contract to somebody else so that they can purchase the property. And when you sell the contract, you sell it at a, uh, for a fee. And so we moved out there to wholesale like larger properties to these other investors out in Reno, Nevada, and um, pretty much and uh, <laughs> failed at wholesaling. <laughs> so what we ended up doing is uh, our first property, um, we put it into contract at just over a million dollars. It was a multifamily property, eight units. And we tried to wholesale it and realized the investors that we wanted actually wanted, or the investors that we had been talking with who were interested in Reno, Nevada, only wanted a lot larger properties than that. <laughs> They're like, this is too small. Uh, I'm not really interested in it. If you can package three or four of these together, I might take a look. Um, so we went through all the due diligence and then we were sitting there with what we thought was a good, pretty good deal and no one to, no one to wholesale to. Um, and so that first failure kind of transitioned us into a decision of, do we want to let this go or do we want to raise some funds and do this project ourselves? 
And so that ended up resulting in our first uh, syndication, our first project uh, that we raised funds for and then did you know, the full rehab value add, uh, restabilization, and then eventual sale of the project. So that was the, that was the first one. And do you still have that property? We do not. We bought that one uh, in October of 2020, and then we sold it in December of 2020. So we actually were, we sold it mid rehab and ended up um, basically doing a two week close while we finished up the rehab in December to sell on the 31st of that year. (laughs) So people were in and out in less than three months. And I'm assuming your investors did pretty good on a, uh, you know, a return of three months. Yeah. So a lot of, um, there's a lot of syndications uh, going on right now and just out there in general. And I think a lot of syndicators will you know, base everything on a three or a five-year timeline. We've tended to do everything differently, which our investors have really liked while they can, you know, for the short time period that we'll be doing real estate. Uh, we've been doing syndications on a more of a, like almost flipping real estate, the same way that people would flip a single family home in you know, three or six months. And the reason for that is, you know, we're, we're in a little bit of time crunch trying to beat that five-year, um, <laughs> that five-year horizon. So we're trying to accelerate that a lot faster, which results in us flipping properties. Um, and so a lot of times we are in and out in three months, six months, whatever it may be. Um, so they made a a twenty percent return on their money in in that three month period. So twenty twenty, Google says, "Hey, don't don't come into the office. Don't work anymore." You're like, "I'm. We're going to figure out how to." start side hustling commercial multi-million dollar deals. You moved to Reno, hanging out with a couple buddies. Did I see you were sleeping on air mattresses, you know, almost startup world version of, of the things you buy the first one because you can't wholesale it. So your failure turns into a success. You sell it, make some money. Now take me from, that first deal that you did, commercial deal, to deciding to leave Google. Yeah, so that first deal, um, I was actually ready to go in and quit in October when we were when, before we purchased it, and our plan was to wholesale it. I said, if we wholesale this like successfully, I will quit. So I was ready to go in on Monday and put in my two weeks, and that's when we pivoted to doing a syndication instead and raising the funds and doing the project. And so I ended up sitting there for the next three months at Google, continuing to work, you know, my nine to five and then doing real estate in the evenings and on the weekends. And that what that meant is by the time those three months rolled around and we had some other projects that were kind of in the works at that point or coming up, I was beyond ready to leave. <laughs> I had, you know, in my mind, I'd, I'd made that mental shift three, for three months now. And um, so when January rolled around and we had you know, next projects identified that we were going to roll all of the funds from the investors and from our profits over into. And we had the next things in progress. Uh, we realized the money we were going to be making from this, from what we were doing in real estate was outpacing what we were making at our jobs in tech. And so my partners worked at Amazon and PayPal. Um, and so they were in similar boats. And so we said, why, you know, why put our 40 to 50 hours a week into these companies anymore when we can make more uh, outside of that? Uh, working for ourselves. So we eventually, in January, we put in our two weeks and, um, and that was it. And then we went full-time in January, 2021 into real estate. And so it's been almost, actually it's been just under a year, about one week, what less than a year. And so um, since, since then, uh, that, that was, you know, we'd completed one project by then. I think we have bought um, close to 30 million uh, since that date. 
and um, kind of scaled up from multifamily to eventually other types of commercial assets, offices, hotels, um, or motels, industrial, uh, retail, and mobile home parks, everything of the sort. So the way that you're buying these, talk me through. So now you got Fresh, PayPal, Amazon, Google, Brains. Looking at the world from that, you guys are hanging out in Reno. You've had a successful, call it flip of an apartment deal, an eight unit one. So what does this next year look like? What what do, what are you doing and how do, how do you grow that? What are three tech people discover and, and what are some of those favorite failures that you've had in that, that last year? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, to actually kind of take a couple steps back, a few months back, what we decided is tech was our advantage in real estate, or at least it could be. And so what we ended up, you know, thinking through is what are the advantages that we have that other people don't. And in the world of tech scale is everything. So like what the advantage you have in the technology world is I can write code that then will you know, apply not just to one instance or two instances, but a thousand or a hundred thousand. And so we can do things at scale that other people can't. And so what we ended up uh, kind of that coupled with this other core thesis, which was that everybody out there, every investor we were talking to said, I have so much money, I don't have anywhere to put it. And we kept hearing this same thing over and over and over again. And I think you know, it, it is probably still true today um, that the world is, you know, the world right now is pretty flush with capital and a really strong deal is hard to come by. And so we realized this bottleneck and we said that works definitely to our advantage, given that we don't have money, but everyone else out there seems to. And deals seem to be this massive bottleneck in the industry. So let's go find deals and let's use scale in order to find it. And so we took our kind of technology backgrounds and said, how do we use technology to do that? And what we ended up, um, what we ended up landing on is realizing, you know, there's, uh, we could put together some code and hack together a way to do direct to seller marketing um, at scale in the commercial world and with these bigger properties. And so we started um, writing code where by the time, you know, when we landed in Reno, Nevada, uh, within the first week, we had attempted to message pretty much every single property owner in Reno, Nevada. By, you know, the first month, we probably had gotten in contact with half of them. And this is in the multifamily space to start because that's where we were comfortable. Um, but eventually it became the commercial, you know, the rest of the commercial assets as well. And so we kind of just used that tech background to uh, originally hack together some code uh, because we were trying to save costs. <laughs> um, but eventually we realized, actually, there is software out there that does all that can do each part of this service. And if we just string together existing, you know, existing products, you know, anyone can do this stuff. And so we kind of pivoted and um, stopped writing our own code, stopped focusing on debugging stuff that was breaking, which is where we were spending a lot of our time and um, just started paying for services instead. But we needed that, you know, upfront. We didn't want to sink in the dollars to, um, to invest in this infrastructure um, without knowing that it would work or not. And so we were able to message people at scale and get in touch with sellers at scale. And we were able to um, make that model work really well for us where we would take a volume and a breadth approach to our marketing and then see what trickles down the funnel and what we eventually end up purchasing. So we were able to find assets that we probably would have no, you know, no business getting our hands on um, if we had to go through the traditional broker networks uh, that most people purchase through. Um, we were able to generate our own deal flow uh, despite not being in the industry, not having any money and having no reason that anyone should trust us. 
Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. That brings up an interesting kind of element. Commercial real estate is typically, you know, an old dudes, you know, kind of network. You know, it's primarily old guys that own these commercial buildings and have forever, you know. And you mentioned something that I've been trying to instill into my, my own son is that, there are things age can be an advantage and a disadvantage at times, depending on the, the context and, and where it is. But, you know, my son, he's looking at, um, you know, doing smart vending machines and putting them in location. So like, you know, going to pitch that to an office, you know, commercial real estate guy that has, you know, uh, an office building or something like that. I go, Man, I think a, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old that comes to you and says, "Hey, here's my data. Here's my other thing, and this is why my vending machine should go there." I think they're going to give you a huge leg up versus you know me or somebody else, forty, fifty-year-old guy that comes in and says, "Hey, I'm gonna, I want to put a vending machine in your uh, lobby," and they're like, "Yeah, get out of here, kick, kick rocks." So, what was your, and maybe talk me through that as you guys these young guys that are looking at the world in a different way. And the, even the fact that you're thinking of like scale, like how can I talk to every person in this market? And how was that an advantage or disadvantage to what you were doing when you got into this space? Yeah, totally. So when we first started, we had the same realization, which is, you know, as you get into bigger and bigger real estate or real estate in general, it's kind of, uh, an old boys network to a large degree. And a lot of these deals are passed around between brokers and buyers that have been in this industry for 50 years, for 40 years, or their family's been in it for hundreds of years. And so these things are getting passed around. And how do you plug yourself into that network and get the first one so that you can get the ball rolling? And a lot of people find themselves in this catch-22 scenario where they're like, I don't have a track record, so I can't ask a broker to send me deals and rely on, you know, actually expect them to send me anything good. But because they won't send me anything good, I can't get into the game and I can't build a track record. And so you end up in this catch-22 and eventually you realize something has to break this cycle. Like I need something to inject myself in here and break this cycle. And so I'll start with the end and kind of work backwards. So now we're in a position where we actually do do a lot of our deals through brokers. They bring us deals and they put them on our plate and they're great deals and then we do those. But early on, we said we cannot rely on that at all. We need to find a way 
to find to source our own deals. And so that means we have to go directly. And the advantage that we had as younger people was that we knew that we're not going to get these advantages, these favors of you know things landing in our in our inbox that we didn't even ask for from brokers um, because we have no track record. And so we need to hustle, but we also can think extremely differently. The same way that a startup can disrupt a huge company that has been there for you know, 100 years and has been doing things exactly the same. Someone who's young can come in and use technology or use some other strategy, something that you know, other people may not be as adept uh, at utilizing, and they can do things extremely different. So what we ended up doing is yeah, we ended up using technology to reach out to people directly. And actually, that stemmed from this question that we asked. We said, this is kind of comes from the startup world and maybe my startup mindset and background there is like, what would this look like if it were extremely easy? And our answer to that question was, if real estate was extremely easy, we would be walking around Reno and every single person would have the price that they would want to sell their property stamped on their forehead. And we decided, what would it take to make that a reality? What would it take to make everyone walk around with a t-shirt that said, I'm willing to sell this property for this much? And we realized, well, we have to contact at volume. Like We have to contact people and ask them for their price. And we have to do it at volume so that everyone's, you know, for us, we don't care if you know you want to sell for a price that we don't want to pay because we'll just go somewhere else. You know, <laughs> we'll find someone else who wants to sell for some something that we can make work. And so that was, you know, that was our approach to the game. And so we answered that question and said, scale is the answer. This is a you know a funnel, like a lot of other things out there. And we need to put more things into the top of that funnel so that what comes out at the bottom is really, really a good deal for us. So that's how we went at it. And I think. If we had been in the industry, we had had the advantages that, you know, a lot of people who have, you know, maybe their families have been in it or they have been in it personally for 40, 50 years buying real estate. You know, they have advantages that we didn't have. And that forced us to think differently like this. And so that youth became the advantage. We actually ended up taking a lot of the deals that we found to brokers. Um, so we've never purchased a property without a broker, even the ones that we've found and definitely did not need to bring to brokers. And we have always paid them a commission every single time. What ends up happening is we source a lot of property. We use that that list, you know, that off-market deal sourcing strategy to get in front of brokers that we traditionally would have no business getting in front of. You know, they would never pay us uh, time of day, and instead we show them, you know, show them value basically, and say we'd like to have you on the transaction. What always ends up happening is three months down the line, when we bought that, brought that broker, you know, three four deals in a row and a lot of business. We become we sh- like short circuit their list and we jump right to the top of their list and so now we start getting you know all the deals that they start finding as well and so we find a lot of the time you know the margin on these deals if they're good isn't in that commission anyway it's that's not where the bulk of the value is so we're happy to share that commission such that they bring us the deals in the future and that we can do you know um, we can do the projects uh, that they that they find so that's been hugely advantageous to us to kind of get plugged into that network to where we are now. But originally, we just had to rule out that that was ever going to happen and say, we got to find a way to add value to the system, um, generate value and add our own so that we can get into this you know, paradoxical loop of um, building a track record despite not having it. That's it's interesting and a, and a very good question. What if everybody was walking around with, you know, this is the price I would sell uh, my, my property on? And exactly as you said sometimes it takes years and years of being in in a in a market or a network to you know uh, sift out what that price is what that strike price would be for that 
seller. And, you know, and sometimes there's obviously people that are just not sellers ever at any number. Um, so interesting how to, how to scale that. So what, you know, so you did that for Reno, then you take it, you know, beyond Reno, you know, you take this and I think this will be applicable to lots of other markets. And what, what has been that process for you, um, beyond maybe you bought all of Reno, all, all $30 million. But, uh, you know, from what I know is you, you expanded that. So how, how did that evolve using tech in your background to, to roll into new markets? Yeah. So we bought, um, we bought the first about $10 million in Reno, um, turned it into about 20 million of value. And what we realized is we could keep going at that pace in Reno, probably indefinitely. But if we wanted to go any faster, we needed to go wider. So we needed, you know, what we were, what we had built is the system that works at scale. And then we had confined ourselves to this tiny little town, Reno, <laughs> and very much limited the scale. And so it again, came out of this need or this hunger to go faster. And so we didn't, what we didn't want to do is go faster at the expense of, say, risk or go faster, you know, at the um, expense of um, relationships or other things like that. But if we can go faster at, you know, at no cost, uh, no cost to us, like this, the whole beauty of tech is that it scales. And so what we realized is this system, we, we kind of built another experiment on top of this. We said, let's take our you know, direct-to-seller marketing system and let's go try it in five different locations and try it in five different places across the country, out in North Carolina and Florida and Texas and Arizona and uh, in Utah. And we said, let's see if we can put someone into the system such that we're no longer the one running it. And we did that and, uh, and it worked. So what we realized is, yeah, as you know, kind of as it's supposed to, tech scaled really nicely. And over the next, um, what that led to is I think in September, that's when we were starting this was in September, looking outside of Reno. And so now it's been December, we've closed on about 10 million and have another 10 million in escrow um, since then. So it really has picked up the speed a considerable amount um, since we've kind of started looking outside of Reno. And again, it was just it was out of that need to, you know, the desire to go faster, the desire to like not be satisfied with the five-year timeline, which can be a dangerous desire, you know, to not <laughs> to want to go build wealth as fast as possible. Um, and so I do, you know, like we spent a lot of time talking about how to de-risk everything along the way. We spend, I've done talks and um, like presentations on how to keep real estate as low risk as possible. And we spend, you know, 50% of our mental bandwidth on on just de-risking, de-risking, de-risking. And that's allowed us to go fast. So it's been one of the major kind of pillars of our investing strategy is make it as low risk as possible so that you can afford to go very fast. So give me some of those action items that you are talking through and spending 50% of your time on a, a de-risking or what, what is that to you? And what are some of those things? And obviously for the people that are listening to this, I'm, I'm sure they're, you know, you know, some are buying commercials, some are looking to get into commercial real estate investing, similar uh, to you. Um, you know, so what is it and how have you structured? And, and obviously it's a, a limited window, but you've done a lot of deals in a short time period. Yeah. So my, my, um, one of my business partners, he worked at Amazon and at Amazon, they have this concept that, um, when Bezos, when Jeff Bezos was there, he would talk about all the time, which is uh, the idea of one way and two way doors. And so a one way door is a door that you walk through. And once you close it, it's gone. You can't turn around and go back through the other direction. 
A two-way door is a door that you can walk through. And if you don't like what's on the other side, you can turn around and just walk right back out. And so we kind of use this concept to realize that there is a sweet spot in real estate. Um, for those for people who are nervous to get started, the sweet spot, in my opinion, when you are on the steepest part of the growth curve, but have the lowest amount of risk is when you're in escrow. So when you've put in an earnest money deposit, but you haven't lifted all your contingencies, so you have your contingencies still in, you have this fake skin in the game, basically. Your mind, you know, you're on the clock. And so your mind acts as if you have all this skin in the game and there's something to lose. But the reality is your contingencies are protecting you from actually losing anything. And so you act as if you, you know, you're fully in and you need to work really hard to uncover every stone of what could go wrong with this property. And you end up learning a lot extremely rapidly without actually taking any risk. And so we use this kind of like this psychology to our advantage where we wanted to get into escrow and work insanely hard during that first period to uncover every stone possible so that we know, you know, whether this, you know, where this project's going to land. And the rule that we, you know, the rule that we have for ourselves is like, your project needs to be a slam dunk by the day you close. If it's not a slam dunk, if you know there's no way you can lose, you have three exit opportunities and they're, you know, there's good, great, and amazing exit opportunities by the time you close, then we're not really interested in closing. And so a lot of, we, once we close a property, we have done 95% of the work and only, there's only about 5% remaining. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, don't really view real estate this way or don't do it this way. There's a lot of people out there looking to buy and say, that looks like a good deal on paper. They do some rough, you know, back of the envelope math and they say, cool, let's buy it. They buy it. And then they'll go on turn stones or uncover stones and, and see, you know, what's behind this wall. Is there asbestos? Is there that, this, that, and the other thing? So what I found is um, the more you can front load that work, the less risk you'll have, the less risk you're going to have. And so the faster you can go, you can do more projects when you know that none of these projects are going to have risk because I'm going to uncover it all during escrow. So, um, you know, we're both part of a, Jake, we're both part of a group called Go Abundance. And I think we were at a, um, or at least I was at an event uh, about five months ago. There was a speaker, his name was Morgan Housel, and he was talking about the psychology of money. And one of his big claims was, Risk is, you know, risk is not uncertainty. Risk is what you can't see or what you don't know. So a lot of the time people think of risk as um, kind of inherent to real estate and that risk is uh, as you increase risk, you increase reward. And as you decrease risk, you decrease reward. And I think it's a completely flawed way to think about risk in real estate. Um, risk and reward are not on the same, they're not tied together at the hip. Um, and you can de-risk a project while increasing, you know, or increasing the reward. Um, you just have to uncover all of the unknowns in escrow and remove all of the all of the uncertainty, all of the what you don't know. Um, and so we're at the point where when we go do projects, we will, um, if I'm going to be opening walls at any point during the project, I'm opening walls in escrow. So I will put in, you know, money. I'll say, hey, I'm going to pay to patch back up this wall after, but. I cannot close on this property unless you let me open the walls and see what's behind here. I need to do an asbestos test. I need to check the plumbing behind here and the electrical um, and make sure, you know, check the dry rot, but I won't close on this property unless you let me open the wall. Here's more deposit money in case, you know, if I walk away, you keep my deposit money and fix it up. So uh, we just, we're not in the game anymore of, yeah, basically, I mean, we, I guess we never, we never were trying to, 
cross our fingers and hope everything's good on the other side. And then closing, you know, walking through the final one-way door, which is closing down the property. Um, so we do everything, all the de-risking while we still have that two-way door and we can still walk away and keep our deposit um, or, and definitely keep all of our, you know, proceeds. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting because I, I see people do um, both of those things. You know, I see people that look at uh, an OM, an offering memorandum from a broker, and it shows some pro forma NOI, and they base and just be like, oh, deal looks good. It's a eight cap, you know, industrial deal in this market. Let's go buy it. And they do like no due diligence, you know, like they just kind of go in, they do it the other And then there's also uh, other people that never put it in escrow and do all of these things of, you know, second guessing the projects and then don't get into it. And somebody else buys it and ends up being a a pretty good deal. So, I mean, it's that thought process. And and I think that's a very clever way of, of thinking about it because you're absolutely correct. It is a very intensive experience when you're like, hey, I'm going to go buy this $5 million deal, you treat it as if you have $5 million and you're like, oh, oh shit, oh shit. Like, like, what do we got to do? Like, what else do we got to do? And so talk me through like some of the things of your due diligence, like, and this is maybe for an action item of somebody that's getting into it because now you've got into industrial property, you've got into, you know, multifamily, you've done mobile home parks, you've done motels. So a, a much wider spectrum than most people have experienced. So what did you do? Were there books? Did you things learn? Like, and, and I would think that being as an engineer, you've probably put together a checklist or something like that. So like, what is your due diligence process look like? And then what led you to building that? Yep, totally. So at the end of the day, when we're doing projects, we are building a product. And we are going to sell that product to a customer. And depending on the size of the product, that customer is very different. So when we buy something for a million dollars and we're trying to make it worth two to three million dollars, there's a certain type of buyer. And when we buy something for eight million dollars and try to make it worth 20 million dollars, it's a very different type of buyer. And so we are always working backwards from whatever that exit looks like. So if we think this is stabilized, a 20 million dollar building, you know, if everything goes well, we will start with our exit in mind and figure out okay, who's going to buy this? What's a reasonable cap rate? And work our way backwards and say, okay, what do, you know, what are institutional buyers? If if that's the case, you know, in the $20 million range, what are they going to look at? What types of checks are they doing? And we need to make sure that we are not only checking all the boxes that we want, that we care about so that we can do our project and, you know, go through with our business plan, but everything that they're going to check, we need to check as well, because we're basically going to do their due diligence within the scope of our due diligence. And that way, when we go to exit, there's nothing that, they see that we wouldn't, you know, have already looked at. So um, that encompasses, you know, that ends up being a lot of uh, kind of stuff all over the place. I think the easy ones that we will start right off the bat is we will kick off a bunch of inspections and we've gotten to the point now early on, we tried to optimize these a lot more and kind of find, do we need it for this project or not? Now, every time we enter escrow, we kick off a physical inspection, we kick off an environmental inspection, a survey, zoning reports. So there's all these different types of reports. Um, and then we can get into more detailed ones if the property gets more specialized. So we have checklists that kind of will walk through, you know, what types of inspections we're looking for based on the types of properties. Um, but at a default physical inspection, environmental inspection, uh, survey, and a, and a zoning report. 
So we'll kick those all off right away. Then there's a huge component of understanding the market. So we treat this as one of the major elements of due diligence, which means I need complete confidence that I understand what market rent is and what market cap rates are. And so usually that in, you know, in, an, in an ideal world, we do this in two ways. One is we actually go find a tenant. So in the commercial world, tenants are a huge driver of the value, a little less so in multifamily because um, there's a lot more people out there looking for homes than there are businesses looking for looking for massive, you know, large buildings. And so we will go and find ideally a tenant that will actually sign a lease while we're in escrow. So we just closed a building in out in Raleigh um, last month, uh, two vacant buildings, and they were both filled before we closed. So when I said earlier, like we want to have three slam dunk exits, you know, a good, great and amazing option to exit at by the day we close, like that, that's what I'm talking about is we will go through the value add portion of the project while we're in escrow. We don't wait until the closing. And if we can't get traction on tenants, then either we don't understand market rent or there's no, there's not significant demand in this market. And so we're not interested in rolling the dice and then trying to find the tenants later. Uh, we're going to use all two, three, four months of our escrow, however long it is, to build that confidence, that data. So we will often take over the LoopNet listing, blast the seller, of course, um, take over the LoopNet listing. Um, we will blast it out to some, uh, you know, if there's uh, people we know locally who are who own businesses that would be a good fit for the building, um, reach out to them. And um, we've also just done cold outreach to businesses before. We've used a lot of the direct, we've used some of the direct to seller marketing campaigns that we do for for sellers on the business side of things as well, looking for tenants. So we will try and validate market rent that way. And we will try and validate market exit or, you know, the exit and the market cap rates um, for these properties by going and finding the end buyer a lot of the time. So a lot of time we will reach this out and try or reach out to say institutional groups or whatever it may be and say, Hey, if we get this lease, you know, what would your, what would you be willing to purchase? And if we can get a forward takeout, from which is basically a commitment from a larger, you know, a larger group saying, yeah, if you get this lease, I would pay this. That's kind of the gold standard of um, due diligence on the exit side. So we we're looking to validate all these things. We are pulling data from CoStar, Crexy, um, uh, brokers, and you know, broker price opinions, appraisals, um, and various other sources out there. So we have kind of checklist for all this stuff. So a lot of time now that we enter escrow, someone will just kind of go about collecting all of this data and putting it together and saying, where are we not hitting the mark? Where were our assumptions too high or too low in comparison to this data? So anyway, that's, a, that's another big part of the due diligence. So the first one, kind of all the inspections. Second one, second portion is validating market that we understand the market. It's market rent, market cap rates. And then uh, once all the, the inspections and whatnot come back, you know, we're going to draft up, you know, we're going to draft up a business plan of all the improvements we need to do, bid all of those items out and get in an ideal world. Again, the gold standard would be getting like what's called a, you know, a GMP or a guaranteed maximum price from someone and basically removing that uncertainty and locking in a price that, you know, your work is, your rehab work is going to um, cost. And so we'll lock that in hopefully um, and uh, no be able to underwrite our full business plan without very, you know, moving variables. When you have too many moving variables, it just becomes very difficult to understand how much risk you're dealing with and how much you know, upside you're dealing with. So we like to just kind of lock down as much of this as possible. Man, I feel like that you so many nuggets of knowledge there that people just don't even understand that 
Um, I think you did a more eloquent way of diving into and splicing in a lot of those details that I talk to people about. Due diligence is everything. Uh, and as far as even, you know, market due diligence, understanding where the market pricing is, because like if you buy something wrong at the wrong price, this wrong strike price, like you can have the best value add contractor that exists in the world and you're still going to be chasing your tail on the project because you paid too much out of the gates. And, and same thing, so many other variables within exist in the project that can, you know, massively deviate your exit, you know, likelihood for success. Uh, well, and that, why I encourage people to also, you know, look at like distress deals is distress deals give you a, a larger discount off of what is market right uh, pricing. But there's still some deals like you could buy, you know, they could give it to you for free and you can still lose money because of the due diligence process. They're like, you know, here's a free building. You'd be like, but it's going to cost you uh, environmental abatement. It's going to cost you $200 a square foot equivalent for that. And it's going to take you 10 years before you have a clean bill of health to sell it to anybody else. So now you got to pay property taxes, do all this cleanup, do all these other things, a free piece of real estate that cost you $10 million, you know? So it's <laughs> yeah. all of those things that people don't necessarily understand. Um, I love the way that you've dove into that. Earlier, you mentioned you thought you could be financially free in six months. And now you've actually discovered that that is a, a, a reality. You could do that. It took you a little bit longer. So talk me through like your path to that financial freedom and then give some like some action items. Like, you know, I know you have some goals to, to help other people, but like, what does that process look that you discovered? Why it took you a little bit longer, how you think somebody or how you could have done it in six months. And then what are some action items for people that are looking for something like that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So for us, you know, it, it could have been the first project or it could have taken years. And what it came down to was how you know, wide we were willing to start that top of the funnel, how big of how large of scale we were willing to go. Um, and that's, you know, we took this breath volume based approach to uh, to real estate and said, like, you know, we're going to cast a really wide net and then we're going to see what comes through on the other side. And the wider that net is at the top, the better the deals that come through the other side. So we built, you know, as I said earlier, a system to use basically messaging to direct the seller. And then we capped ourselves at Reno. Had we not capped ourselves at Reno early on and we said, like, this can work anywhere or made that decision maybe way earlier, we would have got there in six months because rea the reality is that it actually only took, there were, there were single deals that we did where that one deal alone may, would have made all of us you know, financially free. And so if we had just cast a wide enough net, you will find, you know, find those amazing deals out there. But we just capped ourselves and, and limited it to Reno. And, and you know, luckily we picked Reno. Reno was a great market last year. And um, the timing was really was really superb for that, but it's small. It's um, there's a uh, only a few thousand properties to really go after in the in the multifamily space, and a few thousand more in the commercial space. Um, and so your pool is just not that large. So what I would say for a lot of people out there, if you if you are looking for financial independence, if you're coming from a similar background where I was coming from, where money is not the resource that you have in abundance, but effort, time, ingenuity, um, and these other you know desire to hustle, these things are then really you need to find a way to add value or create value that other people can't create. So find some advantage and, and it can just, you know, it can be the same thing. It can be volume and it can be 
you know, I'm going to go direct to seller and I'm going to generate deals. What we recognize that thesis I talked about earlier was that there would just seem to be a lot more people out there who said, I got all this money and nowhere to put it. And we kept hearing it over and over and over again. And so we came up with this conclusion and that deals right now, at least in this market cycle, are the bottleneck. And if we can control the deal flow, then we can get everything else. Everything else will come. And being able to hone in and focus on just that one aspect and say, forget everything else, forget lending networks, forget where we're going to get the capital from, forget um, you know, building this massive list of uh, contractors or whatever. Let's just get a really killer deal. And then let's hope everything else shows up. And we went and found that deal, put it in escrow. And as soon as we had it in escrow, everything else did show up. So it was um, that ended up being true because it was a truth of the market, which was deals were short in comparison to everything else out there. So um, I really would try to simplify your equation out there and don't think of it as, okay, I need to get my contractors in line. I think I need to get my lenders in line. I need to get my fund funds in line. I need to get insurance in line. You don't need to get it all in line. Just find the one thing that's the bottleneck and focus on that one. The rest will come. You can compensate. We found you can compensate for everything else by just having a better deal. It's easy. You can raise funds, more funds by having a better deal. You can endure a worse loan by having a better deal. You can, uh, like we used to pay more points up front. Now we've shortened that down after building the relationship. But the reason we could afford to pay two, three points up front early on for some of these uh, more like flips is because there was enough margin on the deal to withstand that. And so really a lot of things can be made okay by just focusing on this one thing, which is find a killer deal. Yeah, that is uh, so true. As far as what what you said, as far as you know, the the better the discount, the better you can solve for all those others. You can overpay your contractor. You know, you can discover all kinds of you know cans of worm. Obviously, if you're doing appropriate due diligence, like Ryan does, you've you know busted a hole in the wall and already discovered those things. So, um, talk me through you know, as far as what's the next version? It's been a year, year plus, you quit now. What's Ryan's world look like a year, two years, three years down the road? Is it is it more scale at this, more markets? Or what? what is your plan for the future? Yeah, so we, um, right now, you know, we came from a world where we were working about 80 hours a week on real estate when we were in Reno. Yeah, as you said, we're living in a, like a one-bedroom apartment on air mattresses, real estate all day long every day. We've scaled that down. We're now at like 30 hours a week, maybe on real estate. Um, and I'm working actively by the end of, you know, in the next three months to the end of this quarter, uh, I want to get it down to less than five hours a week. So right now the goal is not to stop doing real estate, but to decrease the amount of effort and time that's put into it on a daily basis and just get it kind of moving along in the background all the time. There's a lot of, I mean, at the end of the day, finances, money, it's stored value. And that stored value can be translated to other forms of value. So I see myself going back into the startup world, which is, uh, you know, like the, the most intensely entrepreneurial, you know, thing that can be done. And I think real estate has a ton of entrepreneurship in it, and it is kind of like it is kind of like starting a startup. It's a little bit of a training wheel on there because uh, the industry has been around for a long time, and there's a template. There's some templates to some to doing things certain ways. So you can be an entrepreneur without completely saying, I'm going to create a new industry. <laughs> um, so I'm looking to get more into that kind of like ambiguous startup space and probably transferring or, tra you know, taking some of this stored value, this money and moving it over there to kickstart 
um, whatever engine I'm trying to kickstart in that space. So I've been shifting a lot of focus to thinking about other problems in the world um, outside of outside of real estate and trying to systematize, automate, um, or whatever it may be, you know, hire a team into place that can handle this stuff in the background, all of our real estate work in the background. So that engine can just keep kind of turning along. That's awesome. So how can someone, you know, they have, they have a startup, they have real estate, they're looking at thing, find you. What's something that they add value to you that you're looking for? And then how can they connect with you on that? Um, yeah, the, I mean, I think real estate's, uh, you know, a lot of people say like real estate's a team sport. It's about helping each other. There's a lot of people that helped us along the way um, that honestly didn't need to. We had a lender early on that when we first started talking with him, he really liked the energy we were bringing, the creativity we were bringing. And he said, let me open up like what's under the hood and just showed us, here's the underwriting model that our, you know, that we do all of our loans with. Um, if you plug things in and this turns, this box turns green, like you're going to get a loan. If it doesn't turn green, you're not getting a loan. And you can keep the model and play with it and do whatever you want. And so he basically opened up what was under the hood to us so that we could see and learn at a way faster rate, which just helped us go, you know, helped us get to where we were as fast as we, as fast as we um, wanted to go. And so we want to do the same thing back. Um, we started a, a Facebook group called open source real estate. You can find the Facebook group. You can also just reach out to me directly. I, we're because of that. I think the, the real estate industry is, has largely been a closed industry for a long time. Um, and I, think it is opening up very rapidly. And I'd like to keep that trend and be one of the accelerators of that trend is to help other people invest in, in real estate and get to financial independence at the speed that they actually want to. So they can you know, do, do other things in life like, like I'm looking to do. So as much as I can help, um, that, is, that is what I'm, you know, uh, that is a benefit to me. That is a value to me to help other people who are hungry and will actually um, you know, take advice and, and then go and take action on it. So if you reach out um, via that Facebook group on Facebook in general, or um, I'm happy to share my yeah, email and phone number in the, I don't know if there's show notes or, or something of the sort. And um, I would love to help anyone who's actually serious in taking action there and advice or network or anything like that. So as we're wrapping up, one of the things that um, many people, you mentioned the, the, the lender, you know, that kind of helped you out, you know, took you under the wing. Uh, either mentors or books or other things like that. What has there been that has, you know, given you an outsized kind of return, um, you know, that people may be able to find in kind of an action step? Yeah, when it comes to, um, you know, like learning resources, to be honest, the only learning resources we ever really found were people, other people. And the only way we found them willing to pour time into us so that we could learn was so that we was by us first providing value to them. And so for us, it was through that, like realizing everyone's short on deal flow, including brokers. That's, you know, that's their main job is to find deals. Um, but also lenders and investors with capital and, and everyone else in between deals are the bottleneck here. So we were able to just source deals, use that as our value add to everybody else. And then people started pouring back into us in terms of knowledge. And so it really accelerated the learning curve when we figured out what niche can I step into where I can provide value to everybody else. I encourage everyone else out there to do the same, you know, like much like any other industry out there. If you provide value to people, you know, you'll get value back in whatever you know, form you need it or ask for it. And so if you want to learn the fastest, find a way to add value 
to those um, those who have the knowledge and have been in the industry for 40, 50 years and know all the ins and outs that you might not know yet. Bring them onto your team and pay them for it, like compensate them for it. So when we bring a broker on and we pay them a commission, even though we found the deal, which is typically, you know, like that's typically why you pay a broker a commission is because they find and source a deal for you. We just changed the rules of that system and said, we're going to bring the deal, the value we need you to provide us. And in fact, we told our our first the first broker we worked with in Reno, this is, I need you to keep our, our earnest money 100% safe. And he said, I will guarantee your earnest money. If we lose it, I will pay it. And I said, perfect. That will help me operate in like the mindset that I need to operate in um, in order to keep moving quickly. And so obviously, I still you know don't want to lose his money. Um, and so I still have this psychological incentive structure. Um, but it's allowed us to kind of go fast because we were able to add value and ask for something else, you know, something else in return, in that case, safety. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I feel like I could talk about some of these things forever, but, uh, you know, we're, we're wrapping things up. Um, I just want to, uh, really, you know, uh, thank you for, you know, the mindset in which you bring to this. It is so refreshing to see. I know that you and I have communicated uh, over the last couple of years as well. And how, like you said, adding value, there's lots of people that come to me and, you know, like I'll work for free for you. And like, what can I do? And it's like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you know how to do. So it was like, it, it'd be more effort for me to try to, you know, have someone come work for free for me. Um, but I really appreciate not only this podcast, you know, coming in on, on this interview, but just the way that you show up in general, how you're bringing that zest for life. And I love the way that you think the way that your mind thinks, and maybe that's from being a four-year-old that wanted to be an engineer, that there <laughs> is this kind of these, these action items of like this, to this, to this, a domino effect of you tweak this to that, to the other things. And, and I really, really appreciate you, Ryan, and uh, look forward to future conversations. And, and maybe we do a, a round two of this and we get to uh, some update on what you're doing in the future in the startup, or maybe you've blown up and scaled your, your real estate business. And we're talking about the hundred million you bought in the last 12 months. That sounds, yeah, that sounds amazing. I would love to, uh, <laughs> love to be back on. It's been a a great time uh, this first time around and thanks for uh, thanks for sharing the experience with me. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.